He towered over the uh, uh, brothers and sisters from Guatemala and that one. And yeah, he said, I didn't realize how tall I was until I saw that picture. And you notice about this much difference in height. Yeah. But they had a very, very good week. And we'll be talking to Pastor Bispo again uh, this Tuesday. We usually do that once a month just to remain in contact and to hear what's going on there. And they were really encouraged by their time together. All right, we're going to be in 1 Peter this morning, beginning a new series as we work through this book, and we're calling this message Strangers in the World, Strangers in the World. Let's pray, and then I'll read the text for us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, and again, the joy it is to be able to come and to share that. And when we think about brothers and sisters in parts of the world where they are persecuted or have to meet in secret or in hiding, God, you have given us just this tremendous freedom in this country to be able to come and worship openly. And Lord, I pray we would not take that for granted. It has not always been that way, and it isn't that way in many parts of the world. And so I pray that you would help us to hear this message of Peter in a way that is relevant for us and in a way that also causes us to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in very difficult places. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter writes in the first two verses, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, this particular letter was written by Peter sometime between the years A.D. 62 and 64. It was just before Nero's great persecution of the church that he would unleash. In just a few short years, both Peter and Paul would be put to death by Nero in Rome. Now you think about that. You think about the church being young and growing and the word is being spread, but it's still not being accepted by the culture at large. There are individuals who are coming to Christ. God's doing some pretty amazing things. But in just a few short years, you are going to lose your two most prominent leaders in the church. Peter was the leader and spokesman for the disciples. Here's what we know about Peter. In Scripture, he is called by different names. He's called Simeon. He's called Simon, Simon Peter, uh, Cephas, which means rock in Aramaic, and then Peter, or Petros, which means rock in Greek. Uh, if he were here in America, we'd probably call him Simon Rock. You know, it's just that's the way his name was. He was most often referred to as Simon Peter. And when people heard that, they were thinking Simon Rock in their head. And he was a fisherman from Bethsaida, which is on the Sea of Galilee. He was married, and there were times when his wife would travel with him on these missionary journeys as he went around visiting and establishing churches. We don't know her name. She is not mentioned in Scripture. It's Paul who tells us that Peter at times would take his wife with him as he traveled. He was an ordinary man. He was not well-educated. 
Uh, it was his brother Andrew who introduced him to Jesus. Remember that passage in Scripture where it's Andrew who meets Jesus and then he goes and finds his brother and brings him to Christ. And Andrew is one who in the Scriptures is pictured as doing that on different occasions. Peter was a great preacher. We get that sense from his message in the book of Acts when he spoke on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people came to place their trust in Christ that day. Uh, that's pretty good preaching. But he was not a prolific writer. It's Paul who does much of the writing in the letters we find in the New Testament. And for Peter, we only have two letters, First and Second Peter, that were written by him with the help of a man named Silas. In fact, some of the critics, you know, have looked at 1 Peter, and the Greek is so good that they say that there's no way Peter could have written that. Someone who was an uneducated Galilean could not have written like that. But Peter surprised people on more than one occasion. You may remember in his preaching in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, that the Jewish leaders who heard him were amazed at hearing these men preach, and they recognized them as having been with Jesus. Even though they thought in their mind that these were some sort of uneducated Galileans, there was a power and per persuasiveness in their preaching and speaking that identified them as having been with Jesus. And it may be that Silas was the one who helped again Peter in crafting this letter, we also see that in the Gospel of Mark. Many people think that Mark is really Peter's Gospel, that Mark got the stories from Peter and he wrote them down and told us about the life of Jesus Christ. Peter was the source of many of the stories that Mark included. And then sadly, as I mentioned, Peter would be crucified by Nero sometime around A.D. 67 in those years. Legend tells us that he was crucified upside down because he said, I am not fit to die in the same manner as my Lord. It was a difficult time for the church, as you can imagine. Christianity was new, and believers were viewed with suspicion by Rome, uh, partly because they refused to bow down to Caesar and call him Lord. You know, there was this oath of loyalty that you were supposed to take in making the public offerings or the vows, and you were supposed to declare Caesar as Lord. And the believers in the church would not do that. For them, Jesus was Lord. And so there were times when they were charged with treason or being disloyal to the state. There were also rumors and misunderstandings about what Christians believed. Christians, because they needed to meet in secret, would meet sometimes in wooded areas, or they'd meet in caves, or in Rome, they hid in the catacombs where they had their services. And so people didn't always know what was going on, and believers were accused of cannibalism, if you can imagine, because they heard that they ate and drank the blood of Jesus Christ. And they did not understand what communion was about and that the bread and the wine were symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. And so many people were ostracized. They, were, uh, they lost jobs. They were put out of families or they were accused of all these kind of things. And I think it's good for us to understand that historically because there are times when we may feel like things are 
tough or changing in our world for Christians, even in America today, where Christ is being pushed out of the public discussion where people you know, say you've got to be tolerant of everything and so they don't want to hear from someone who declares that there is absolute truth. And it may seem hard or difficult or challenging at times, but it is nothing like what our brothers and sisters were experiencing in those first centuries and what many of our brothers and sisters are experiencing even today. Peter writes then, as a pastor, his message is warm, it is full of encouragement and practical applications. It was interesting to me to read that because of that, you know, in parts of the world today where believers are being persecuted for their faith, 1 Peter is one of their favorite books. This is a book they come back to often because of the practical instruction. You see, the question that Peter addresses is, how do we live for Christ in a world that is hostile to the gospel? How do we live for Christ in a world that's changing, a world that is ignorant of the one true God and that doesn't really understand Christians or really understand what it means to follow him? And the place where Peter begins in answering that question is by reminding us of who we are in Jesus Christ. Who we are in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. He begins by telling us, first of all, that we have been chosen by God. Peter writes to God's elect. To God's elect. Now what does it mean to be chosen? You know, all of us can probably think back to, especially if you were involved in sports, to a time in your life when you were probably playing on a team. And back, you know, when when I was a kid, I mean, the way that teams were picked where you took two of the best players, you know, and they they were put out there to be captains, and then they were supposed to pick everybody else, you know, and everybody else kind of lined up on a line, and it's like, okay, I want you, and then you, and then you, and, and you go through that, and nobody wanted to be the last one picked. And I remember, you know, I, I had that experience once where in grade school, again, we were having this practice for baseball and kind of tryouts at the start of the season, and Coaches were working with us, and we were on this practice field that was kind of rough. And they were trying to teach us, you know, if you're in the outfield, you want to make sure you block the ball so it doesn't get by you. You know, put that glove down, but get down on one knee. And, and so the coach hit a ball to me, and it was coming across the field, and I got down on one knee. And when you know this ball hit a gopher mound that was right in front of me, came up, caught me right in the eye. And so when it came time to being picked for the team, here's this, you know, grade school kid with the ice pack on his face and the, you know, the eye and the whole thing. And it was the upperclassmen doing the picking who really didn't know me. And so I was one of the last ones chosen and I just felt, oh man, just awful about it. When you think about God's choosing us, God's election of his people is meant to be a source of great comfort. It's not meant to be something that would cause conflict in the church, and it's not meant to be something even that caused conflict with the whole idea of human responsibility. I know that sometimes when the doctrine of election is talked about among believers, you get into these camps of Arminian camps or Calvinist camps and kind of argue about how do we understand this doctrine of election. It was never written in a way that was supposed to promote controversy. It was supposed to be a great comfort. 
And it is one of those mysteries of the faith in terms of how does election and human responsibility and accountability fit together? Bible teaches both are true. God is sovereign, man is fully accountable. But it speaks about election, and so we shouldn't be afraid to talk about this at all. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul says this, that God chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the creation of the world. I mean, just let your mind think about that for a while. He chose us in him before the worlds were even made, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So in the mind of God, before the worlds were made, he knew you and me, and he chose those who would be his, who would become part of his family. And he so worked in our life to draw us to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we should become sons and daughters of God. And that choosing of us is meant to be an encouragement to the church. Peter tells us that we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And it wasn't a foreknowledge that, that he knew who would respond to him or respond to the gospel. It was a foreknowledge of us before we had done anything good or bad, before we were even here, God chose us in him to become part of his family. And he chose us according to his pleasure and will. That's pretty amazing. I mean, he delights in you. He delights in us. He wants us to be part of his family and he has created all of these wonders for eternity that he is going to reveal to us in the ages that are to come. I want you to notice in this passage how all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. He writes in verse 2 that we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So it's God the Father who chooses. And that it is through the, the sanctifying work of the Spirit that we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That work of the Spirit, uh, normally we think of sanctification as what occurs after you accept Christ and, and then that process of how he makes us more and more holy and purifies our heart. But the Holy Spirit is active before we even come to know Jesus. I mean, he's the one that opens our eyes to see the wonder and glory of Christ. He's the one who convicts us of our sin and our need for a Savior. He's the one who brings those right circumstances together, often bringing an individual into our life who shares with us the gospel or touches our heart in such a way that we are drawn to Jesus Christ. Our salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit who comes and sanctifies our heart and applies the work of redemption to our life. And the goal of that is that we would be obedient to Jesus Christ. That we would understand that our salvation is made possible only because of what Jesus has done for us. And that we would understand then and choose to follow Jesus Christ fully with all our heart. You are God's elect. To the Jew, that was very special. They knew that out of all the nations on the earth, God had chosen Israel 
to be his covenant people, to live in a relationship with him that was distinctive and to declare his glory to the world around them. It was both a privilege and a responsibility, and it is the same thing for us as Christians. To be a part of God's family is a great privilege, but it is also a responsibility to live then in a way that others can see Jesus in us and that we can share that good news with people around us. As God's elect, there are three things that you can count on. You can count on God the Father being sovereign over everything that comes into your life. You can count on God the Holy Spirit to be continually at work in you, to make you holy, to purify your heart, to draw you closer to Jesus Christ. And you can count on God the Son continually leading, guiding, walking with us in this life. And He has called us to know Him and to make Him known, to declare His glory among the nations. The key then is to act on what we know to be true. Many years ago, there was a famous plastic surgeon. His name was Dr. (laughs) Maxwell Maltz. And he wrote a, a book that was called New Faces, New Futures. It was a collection of case histories of people for whom plastic surgery had opened up a whole new life. And the author's theme was that amazing personality changes can take place when a person's face is changed. However, as the years went by, Dr. Maltz began to learn something else. Not from his successes, but from his failures. He began to see patient after patient who even after facial plastic surgery did not change. People who were made not simply acceptable, but actually beautiful, kept on thinking and acting the part of an ugly duckling. They acquired new faces, but they went on wearing the same old personalities. And worse than that, when they looked in a mirror, they would angrily exclaim to the doctor, I look the same as before. You didn't change a thing. And this in spite of the fact that their friends and family members could hardly recognize them. And although before and after photographs were drastically different, Dr. Maltz's patients kept insisting, my nose is the same, or my cheekbones are the same, or you didn't help at all. Interesting, isn't it? I read that, and I wonder if that's why some of the celebrities that have had so much uh, plastic surgery or things done time and time again where they actually look more disfigured, and they go beyond what would be considered normal is because they just have this track in their mind that says that I don't don't look good. I'm not handsome. I'm not pretty. I'm I'm not the way I think I should be. And what Dr. Maltz realized is that real change comes from within. It comes when the heart and the mind are changed. And that's what Jesus Christ does. That's why the Scripture says that we are to be renewed in our mind. We're to be transformed in our thinking so that we don't listen to those lies of the enemy and the things that he wants to say that would discourage or defeat or keep you in bondage. But instead, we listen to the truth of Jesus Christ and we are changed by the power of his word. God understands our needs. He loves us. You are chosen in Him. But the Bible also reminds us that we are strangers in the world. So here's this tension. 
We're loved by God, but in the world, there are going to be times when we will feel like strangers, rejected. It's interesting that uh, it's just three words in Greek in this opening statement that says, elect exiles of the dispersion. That's how we're described. Elect, chosen, exiles, that's strangers, of the dispersion that are scattered about the world. And so Peter is writing in his day to believers who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And all of those um, were in what we would call northern Turkey today. And it seems like, we don't know this for sure, but it seems like Paul in his ministry went through southern Turkey and the providence, provinces that were there, and that Peter went north of the Taurus Mountains on the Anatolian Plain, and he went across Turkey, going toward the west, and so they were in different areas with very little overlap. And now he is writing back to those churches. And we just don't know a lot about them because, uh, again, Peter was not as prolific a writer, but that seems to be what was happening. And Peter writes this message that is not just for them, though, but it's for all of us. It's for all of us. And he calls in the world. The word could also be translated as sojourner. Now, do you know what a sojourner is? A sojourner is a person who lives in another land for a brief or temporary stay. And there are implications to being a sojourner. What that means is that our real home is somewhere else. We saw that last week. We looked at Philippians 3.20, where Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's describing our stay on this earth, whether it's 20 years or 70 years or 100 years, it's a sojourn. We're just here temporary residence, brief period of time. Okay, we're, we're passing through. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And so sometimes that is why we feel out of place in this world or we find ourselves longing for heaven. When there is sickness and sorrow, when there's suffering and death, we long for that day when those things will pass and there will be that permanence. When you see the world rejecting Christ or rejecting the values that Scripture teaches and we run up against that, you know, you just long for the day when everyone will see Jesus as Lord and choose to follow Him. We look at the direction our culture is going and we're shocked by some of the choices being made and we shake our head at it. Or we see the number of lost, the people in our world still, the billions of people who do not know Jesus Christ yet. And we long for the day when they will hear the good news of the gospel. Believers have felt that in other generations as well. In the book of Hebrews, when the author of Hebrews describes those saints who have gone before us, and he talks about how they understood that they were aliens and strangers in this world just passing through. And they were longing for a better country. That is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and He has prepared a city for them. Wow. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, at present, we are on the outside of the world. We are on the wrong side of the door. 
and we discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We, we long for that. We see what is supposed to come, and we see what is there that God is preparing for us, but we cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The door is going to open and God is going to bring us into that heavenly home. One of the other implications of being a sojourner is that we know that our highest loyalty is to Jesus Christ. And also, I guess I skipped over the point that a sojourner also doesn't put down a lot of roots. That a sojourner travels light, doesn't hang on to the things of this world. You know, he's moving, he's following Jesus Christ wherever he may lead. When Peter talked about our highest loyalty being to Jesus Christ, he challenged those believers to be good citizens to Rome, even though Nero was the emperor. He said, fear God and honor the king. Do that to the best of your ability, but... If there is a conflict between what our government would ask or what our, quote, king might ask, our highest loyalty is to God. We are to be good citizens of the kingdom. But just like Peter and John and others would say, we must obey God rather than men when the two come into conflict. That's not easy, is it? It wasn't easy for those new believers when Nero was challenging them to say Caesar is Lord and to give him their highest loyalty. It isn't easy for believers today. Through the voice of the martyrs ministry, we hear about persecution in other parts of the world. In a few weeks, we're going to have a day when we remember the persecuted in our church and we'll show one of their DVDs in our ABFs. And it's showing what is happening in Nigeria, for example, but it's also occurring in Egypt, it's occurring in Iraq, it's occurring in Indonesia and in India and parts of Pakistan, where believers and churches are systematically being killed, targeted, churches are being bombed and destroyed. Uh, in Egypt alone, there were 40-some churches that have been destroyed and kind of this uprising going on there. And you have to believe, if it was the other way around, you know, these are being targeted by radical Muslims, if it was the other way around and there were 40 mosques that were being destroyed in Egypt, you'd have to believe that the news would really be raising that up and you'd be hearing a lot about it. But Christians are being killed every day in places like that. Targeted, run out of their homes, living in fear and hiding simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't easy for those first century Christians. It isn't easy today. For us, it is a very different type of experience that we have. But in a recent article on suffering in the church, FaithWorks listed the degrees of persecution that one can face for the practice of religious faith. And on the one end, that persecution or things that we may feel may be disapproval, ridicule, pressure to conform, loss of educational or work opportunities, economic sanctions, 
shunning or alienation from the community and loss of employment even. And on the other extreme, it can lead to places in our world where there is harassment by officials, there is kidnapping, there is forced labor, there is imprisonment, there is physical torture, there is murder or execution. It's a degree, it's a matter of degrees as this persecution and oppression can grow and change very quickly. And that's why to live for Christ is to recognize that we may experience suffering and trials and persecution in this world. In fact, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted to some extent. What do we do? How do we respond to that? Well, that's where the Scripture then thirdly calls us to obedience. We are called to obey Jesus Christ. That's the goal of the Gospel, that we would come into a relationship with Jesus and follow Him as our Savior and Lord. Paul said the same thing in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he said that through Him and for His namesake, we receive grace and apostleship. To call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to, Christ, to Jesus Christ. Paul understood that he was there to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. And Christianity isn't just an intellectual choice that we make. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, you know, or yeah, I believe that about Jesus, and then go live as we please. If we really understand what it means to commit our life to Christ, then we are going to live according to the promises of His Word. And we're going to put into practice in our life the things that He has taught us. We are to follow Jesus Christ. And in this letter, Peter will say that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in His steps. And in particular, He is talking about when suffering or hardship comes. How do we live in a world that doesn't know God and is hostile to the gospel? The answer that Peter gives us is to follow Jesus' example and secondly, to overcome evil with good. To do what is right, do what is good. Now that's pretty simple, isn't it? You know, follow Jesus' example, overcome evil with good. I mean, that's easy to say, but that is difficult to do. Very difficult to do. But here's what Peter is saying. We are to live such good lives among the pagans, that is the non-Christian world, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. And that is what we are to do in the ordinary circumstances of our life. You know, this week, uh, we had the funeral service for, for Mindy. And I know John and Debbie are here today. And I know that our thoughts and prayers and all of us are just lifting you up and walking with you through this trial. And I have to say, you know, when I look back on my years of ministry here, I think of the funeral service for Mike Lazat, and I think of this service for Mindy as two examples of very difficult circumstances where, but I have received more 
comments and more feedback from people on those two services than probably any sermon I've ever given. Um, And I think the reason for that is that, and I want to say this to all of you, is that your witness for Christ in the midst of that just speaks so powerfully. I mean, I've had people stop me this week at the coffee shop, at the fitness center, over at the high school, at the grocery store. I went to a soccer game. People were talking to me there. I mean, it's kind of everywhere I've been, I've had people stop and talk to me. And what, what touched their hearts so much was the compassion that you've shown and the way that we spoke about things the openness to talk about mental health issues and the challenge that they present and how people often suffer in silence and the need to be there and walk with people when they're going through tough times. Uh, People have, have talked about just the hope or the message that came through and they've opened up to share about things in their own life. And I say that because it's an example of how God can use us even in those trials of life that are so difficult and work for good. And what happened was painful and not what anyone wanted. But God can take those circumstances when we put them in His hands and use them as an opportunity to minister to others in powerful ways. I I even had a comment from one of the officials at the school over here, at the high school, who said, uh, after the service, he said, it made me proud to be part of this community. Now that's, that's really interesting. You know, that, that to know that in our community that there is this support network or there is this partnership that exists between uh, churches, between the school, between the businesses or the uh, hospitals, nursing homes, care facilities here to minister and to be able to do that openly in the name of Jesus Christ and to lift Him up, that's a powerful thing. That's what we want to have happen this weekend even in Feed My Starving Children. We want to be good and gracious hosts. We're going to have 800 people here, and they are going to come from other churches as well as our own. They're going to come from the community or businesses in the community. Some will know Christ, some don't. Some are here just because they think it's a good thing to do. But our witness, the way we welcome people, the way we work, the joy we have in our heart, all of that is a witness for Christ, and that is the challenge to live in such a way that others can see Jesus in us. And that is exactly what the early church did. In the third century, a man named Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage, wrote to his friend Donatus. And he said, It is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned the great secret of life. They have found a joy and wisdom which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians. And I am one of them. I am one of them. That's our desire too to live in such a way that others can see Jesus in us. How do we do that? Well, Peter tells us that we need to remember who we are in Christ, that we have been chosen by God, we are part of His family. Now live like that, like a child of the King. 
We are strangers in this world. So don't let that surprise you and don't grumble and complain about that, you know, but live in such a way that others might see the difference in you and me. And remember, we are called to obedience. That our highest loyalty is to Jesus Christ and the way that we overcome the world is by following His example and by doing what is right and good. Let's pray. Father, would You give us the strength to do that each and every day, to keep our eyes on Jesus and to live as citizens of Your kingdom, to fear God, to honor the King, to do what is right in the eyes of all men in as far as it is possible. But Lord, also to reflect just the the grace and truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to show His compassion and mercy, to speak the truth and love, to share the good news of the gospel, to touch hearts and lives, to come alongside of people when they are hurting, and to pray and to lift them up, to give to feed the hungry, to use our resources generously, to provide for the needs of others, and most of all, to bring the good news of the gospel to people who have never heard it before. That's our prayer, Lord, and would you continue to use us in that way. Amen.